Well, Jesus famously said in Matthew chapter 4, preceding what we're going to be looking at today, he told his disciples, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. You might remember that old Bible school song. I will make you fishers of men. See, Mary Kay gets it. Like anytime I bring up something like that, she's over here just ready to go. Uh, that, that, is, that is amazing. I love it. Yeah, a lot of time at VBS, right? Um, I remember learning that song as a child, and uh, it stuck with me. It's been in my heart now for all of these years. And the challenge to follow Jesus, though, is not a challenge to become a fisherman. It's a challenge to become his disciple, his student. Um, and that's exactly what that word means. It's derived from the common Greek word mathetes. So the, the, the name Matthew bridges off of that. That's why I love the fact that Levi changed his name to Matthew, or at least Jesus did, because it showed that he had become a disciple. And it means one who is a student, one who is a pupil or adherent of another. You are willfully placing yourself underneath of somebody for instruction. And that, that, that brings the question, well then, what is discipleship? We talk about being a disciple, what is discipleship? Now the word disciple appears many times in scripture. Discipleship, however, doesn't. But we understand that concept from looking at the disciples and how Jesus called them and nurtured them and taught them, re rebuked them, and led them. So we see that there are dozens of definitions by dozens of theologians, pastors, and ministry leaders, all of them much smarter than me. They've got all kinds of degrees after their name. And I, honestly, I, I, I tried to find a good definition. I'm like, well, what's a good definition of discipleship? And I just could not find one that wasn't like 10 miles long and just so convoluted. And so I thought, well, you know what? I'm just going to bring it down to my level because that's how I do this. <laughs> like, I've got to understand it before I can even try to make sense of it. And so here is mine. It's pretty simple. Discipleship is the daily attempt right? Now, attempt doesn't mean you're perfect. Daily attempt to imitate Jesus and lead others to do the same. That's it. That's discipleship. And it boils down really to what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. He said, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. That's discipleship. Like you're, you're doing your best every day to follow Jesus, to grow in him, and lead others to do the same, whether that, that is your family, people in the workplace. You are, you are encouraging people to follow Jesus through your witness, through your words, through everything that you do. And as we're going to see as we go throughout the study over the next few weeks, I believe discipleship and evangelism are hand in hand because you are showing people what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus. You're inviting them into that through your lifestyle. And the call of Jesus to the early disciples is really the, the same call that uh, he lays upon us today. We follow him and we lead others to do the same. And the mission of the church, that, that's our mission, right? To glorify God by making disciples. Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission. He says, go and, and baptize and, and make disciples. We teach everything in his name, and he is with us to the end of the age. And you cannot make sense of the Christian life without understanding the necessity of discipleship, of being a disciple. 
German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He understood the heart of discipleship better than, than most people. And he wrote this very famous classic book. It's kind of dense. It takes you a minute to get through it, but I'd encourage everybody to read it at least once. It's called The Cost of Discipleship. And this is from the pen of a man who lived in Nazi Germany covertly trying to subvert the Nazis and Hitler and wound up dying for his beliefs and standing on the gospel. Here's what he wrote. He says, thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. And then his famous line, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So that's encouraging, right? You're like, come and die. What does that mean? Discipleship means I give up my life? Indeed, it does. The call of discipleship will cost you your life. Maybe not physically. You might not be in imminent danger of dying. You could be. But in dying to yourself, laying that down, your desires, your will, the things that you, you, you want for the things that he wants. Dying to yourself will find and give you true life, as Jesus said in Luke 9, 24. But before we jump headfirst into this text today, I want to very quickly point out the context here. I want, it's important to always have the context, to have it framed correctly before you just dive in to a verse of Scripture or a chunk of Scripture. And so what I want to do is I want to quickly point out that there are essentially two types of people that we see in this passage. Matthew chapter 4 going into Matthew chapter 5. It's Jesus has just started his public ministry. It is a big time for him. Everywhere he goes, people are there. And, and as we begin to see and look closely, there are two types of people. There are those who are disciples, and then there are those who are faces in the crowd. That's who they are. And Scripture informs us that these two types of people are kind of marked and motivated by very different things. So let's do a bit of compare and contrast here. So a disciple is motivated or marked by calling, right? I mean, we see that back in chapter 4, verse 18. Jesus is calling his disciples. He's walking along the Sea of Galilee. He sees Simon, who we know as Peter. He sees his brother Andrew. They're fishing, and he looks at them, and he says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Then he goes on a little bit further, verse 21. He sees uh, the, the other two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. They were in the boat with their dad. They're at work with their dad, right? And Jesus comes by and he says, uh, follow me. And he called them is what it says there in verse 21. So we see that there's a sense of calling. And by the way, they immediately dropped their stuff and, and went on, as we're going to see here in just a moment. So that's a, 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 the first motivation or mark of a disciple. Secondly, a face in the crowd is, is motivated or marked by convenience. So look at verse 24 in chapter 4. It says, The news about him spread throughout all of Syria. And then at the very beginning of 25, it says, Large crowds followed him. They're following him everywhere. Why? Because they know that they can get some stuff from him. Now, not everybody in the crowd has this type of motivation, but we see that a large majority of them do. 
Because when Jesus basically lays down the gauntlet in the book of John, if you remember, and he talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, he's talking about there sharing in his communion, and everybody left. <laughs> they were out there like, what is the eat my flesh, drink my, what is he talking about? This is weird. And then Jesus turns and looks at Peter, looks at the disciples and says, are you going to go too? And what does Peter say? He says, Lord, where else do we have to go? You're the son of God. We follow you. So we see that the crowd here, though, most of them are motivated by convenience. Something's going on here. It's something I can get. Me, me, me. Let me get my hands on that. And they just want that convenience. Well, a disciple, secondly, is motivated by obedience. We see that verses 20 and 22 in chapter 4. Immediately they left their nets, followed him. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Immediately. Like, then and there. It doesn't mean that they went home and put affairs in order. They literally got up and went with Jesus when he called them. So there's this sense of, of being obedient, of being, uh, you know, immediately following. Well, a face in the crowd is motivated or marked by consumption rather than obedience, right? We see that uh, in verse 24, it says, They brought to him all these who were ill and suffering. And there's nothing wrong with bringing your, your wants and your needs and, your, and the things that you need help with to the Lord. But if that's all you want from him, that is severely deficient uh, in your understanding of following Jesus. God is not a genie in a bottle for us to grant our wishes. He is the Lord that we bow down to and follow. So we don't want to have this mentality of consumption, of consumerism. That is not discipleship. But a, a disciple, we see, is motivated by intimacy here, verses uh, 1 in chapter 5. Like when Jesus saw the crowds, he, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, it says his disciples came to him. The word picture there is they huddled up. They got in close. They leaned in to hear what he had to say. There was a sense of intimacy of having that, that bubble, right? Everybody talks about having like a personal bubble, like you're in my bubble. Like this idea here is they were inside the bubble with Jesus. They were intimate here. And then a face in the crowd is motivated by detachment. It's another marking there. Because when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, blank. It says his disciples came to him, but what about the rest of the crowd? I don't know. Fill in the blank. They went to Frisch's to get a burger. They, they went to, to, uh, to, to Walmart to finish their grocery shopping. Whatever it might be, they were like, all right, I'm out. Like, he, he gave me what I needed. I'm done. So only his disciples came to him. So being a disciple of Jesus is something that requires calling, obedience, and intimacy. These are marks of a disciple. It's these things that we must remind ourselves about as we follow Jesus day in and day out through good times, through bad times, because sometimes his calling on your life is all you have to fall back on when things are hard. Sometimes you just have to be like, God, you called me to this. Like, you knew how insufficient this would be, how I would be at this, but yet you still called me. And if you're just a face in the crowd, it's always easy to just kind of cut bait and run, pull up anchor, go home. 
But if you're a face in the crowd today, we're glad that you're here. It's our prayer and hope that you will leave this place as a disciple. That is always our, our chief expectation when Ken or I, when Harry prepares to get up here and to sing. It is our expectation that somebody is going to encounter the Lord today. It's not just something that we get up here to do, to have, you know, all of this, uh, this pomp and circumstance with. It is something that we truly believe. So those that drew near were both challenged and comforted by the words of Jesus and what we call the Sermon on the Mount. So hopefully today, his words, which is why I said, you know, it's going to be a great sermon because it's him. It's not me. Like his words, maybe they will challenge and comfort you today. So our text contains what have been dubbed in church history as the Beatitudes. Or if you're like I was when I was a young kid, I thought it was Beatitudes. <laughs> and it just made me think of Michael Jackson every time. Beatitudes, right? So have that stuck in your head for the rest of the day. But Beatitudes come from the Latin word beatus. Right? There's another joke there about diabetes, but I'm not going down that route with Willard Brimley, which means blessed. It means happy, right? As a noun, right, a descriptive thing, like it can depict someone who has received divine favor. Not just any favor, but divine. So these things we are about to study are descriptive. Like they describe who a disciple is. They are not prescriptive, right? Do this and you will be a disciple. That's not how this works. You're called. You cannot keep a checklist and, and say, okay, Lord, now grant me this status of discipleship, of disciple. No, he calls you. So these things describe who you are in Jesus, who you should be. So in other words, keeping these like rules won't earn you God's favor. God's favor compels you to live these out in your lives. And much like the fruit of the Spirit that we learn about in, in the book of Galatians, the Beatitudes paint a portrait of who a disciple of Jesus should be and how they think, how they act, how they engage the world and the culture around them. Amen. All of this starts in here, inward, right? Internally. Now, what I want to do is take each one of these beatitudes, and I want to transform it into a question. And hopefully this question will, will challenge our hearts and diagnose where we are in terms of our discipleship relationship with Jesus. That's why I titled the sermon, A Discipleship Diagnosis, right? Like we are asking, you go to the doctor, they ask you, what's wrong? How, how do you feel? Where does it hurt? Like they are diagnosing you so that there can be uh, something that's prescribed to you, right? So we are looking today inwardly and having this diagnosis of our discipleship relationship with Jesus. So number one, do I recognize that I'm spiritually bankrupt? And I'm going to try to go quickly here, so just kind of hang on. But number one, do I recognize that I'm spiritually bankrupt? Verse 2 of chapter 5, it says, He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirits, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see that there? Is. I love that. So being poor in spirit means you recognize your insufficiency, your inability to face life apart from Jesus. 
You know that you can't do this. You're broken, right? It means you depend on him for everything. On the days when you get mad and scream at your kids, the days you get mad and kick your dog, whatever it might be, you depend on him because you cannot do this on your own. You have to have him. It has less to do with being monetarily rich or poor, right? But whether you embrace daily dependence on God for all that you need. Now, there are two different terms in the New Testament for this, this idea of being poor. And the first one refers to those who struggled financially, literally poor people. And that's the majority of the people that followed Jesus. They didn't have anything already. So what they had to lose? They were following after him. And these people barely had enough money to make it day to day, but they survived. They were in the trenches, just like most of us are, slugging it out day in and day out, trying to earn an honest living, trying to put food on the table, trying to be at home. And they were at least a functioning part of society. That's the first kind of poor. Second kind of poor referred to those on the fringe of society, the outliers, the wretched, the despised, the type of people that were outcasts, the type of people that were completely avoided and mistreated by everyone else because they were weak and they were helpless. And actually, that word for poor is patokas, which sounds like you're hawking up a loogie, patokas. That's the kind of people that he's talking about here, patokas. Are you patokas in spirit? Are you out? Are you, an out, are, you, are you on the fringe here, is what he's saying. Like, because if you are, you're in good company because the kingdom of heaven is yours. This is the kind of poor Jesus is talking about. Those despised for how weak they are. But even though they are despised and weak, he says that they are the ones who, who have inherited. That is present tense there for all my gr grammar people, right? You have the kingdom of heaven. Not you will get it. It is yours now. And that is good news. So most of us have spent our whole lives, though, trying to become anything but poor in the spirit because of our culture, right? Like we want to be rich in the spirit or at least middle class in the spirit, right? You, you want to have something there, right? Uh, this idea of being poor is not something that we latch onto. We want to feel like we are sufficient for the task, like we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and do this, like we have it under control and don't need to be afraid about going into the future because we can handle it. But not only does that keep us cut off from the Lord's help, it also corrupts our spirit is what we see here. So friends, listen, becoming rich in yourself, rich in your abilities and your righteousness only leads to self-centeredness. You become inwardly focused on yourself rather than upwardly focused on the Lord. You're part of the, the me generation, me, 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 me. But being a disciple of Jesus means that it is all about him. That's who it's about. He is the center of everything in your life. He is what everything revolves around. This is not an option, by the way. This isn't something you can just kind of come to it and say, I'm going to follow Jesus on my own terms, this is not an option. It's not how this works. He is not your co-pilot. He is the king and commander of everything. He is the one who is in complete control, and he has made the only exclusive way to have a relationship with him through the cross and through the, the blood that was shed there. So friends, listen, we have to realize that 
we are spiritually bankrupt if we desire to have a relationship with Jesus. It starts by realizing that inwardly. It's his righteousness, not ours, that makes us holy. It's his work on the cross, not our best efforts that bring us justification and righteousness. Without this fundamental understanding, you will never truly be a disciple of Jesus. So, do I recognize that I'm spiritually bankrupt? Second question, do I have the capacity to mourn? Look at verse 4. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So, mourning goes along with being poor in the spirit, right? When you feel powerless, when you feel weak and unrighteous, you mourn and God comforts you. It's where you find comfort from him. But notice here that Jesus doesn't mention the cause of this grief. He just says that you will grieve. Life is hard. The world is broken. Things will will compound upon you, and it will be hard at times. And I think that you can view mourning here in two different ways. And first kind of goes hand in hand with what we just talked about. And that first one is you mourn over your sin. You mourn over being broken. You see God for who he is, and you are grieved for how you have rebelled against him and how you have treated him. That's coming to a point of repentance. You are crushed in your heart and soul over your sin and the price it required in the brutal death of Jesus. doesn't mean that you sit there and, and just only stay in that. No, you, you look upward to him and see how wonderful he is to reach down and pull you out of that sin. But you still have to reckon with it. You still have to mourn over it. Number two, mourning over the brokenness of the world. And I think that this is kind of what he's driving at here. As followers of Jesus, the broken state of the world should grieve us because we know it's not supposed to be this way. We have for us in Scripture the blueprint of how things should have been perfect, but yet sin corrupted everything. And I'm fairly certain I've quoted these lyrics before, uh, but I repeat myself a lot, so I apologize for that. But if you grew up in the 90s and early 2000s like I did, and you listened to Christian ska music, then you were, you were in, in tune with the OC Supertones. They were a great band. And they had some pretty hard-hitting lyrics in their songs. And so there's one called Prince of Peace. And, and I'll just sample some of the lyrics here because I think it goes perfectly with what we're talking about mourning over the brokenness of the world. It says, does the world ever seem like a nightmare? Some suffer, but the other ones don't care. What does it matter if it's going on elsewhere like it doesn't happen if it's not happening here? There's a girl with only a mother, and her dad just won't seem to bother. No love, so she finds a lover. Now she has a child who doesn't have a father. Man, those lyrics are great. He says, when the communists turn into the terrorists, but the Axis came before the Soviets, and before that came the Confederates, we'll always have a war to fight. You can count on this. With every cure, there comes another sickness. The earth dies with every bit of progress. We've gone deaf to the cries of the oppressed. We need Jesus to redeem us. And then the resounding chorus throughout the song is, I hope the Prince of Peace is coming soon. I hope the Prince of Peace is coming soon because we long for the day when we will see the heavens and the earth as they should be powerful lyrics to a powerful song but this grief should not keep us from engaging 
in bringing hope and comfort to others. Like we are involved in this mission, right? That's what being a disciple means. We are active. So friends, listen, mourning means a willingness on your part to enter the pain of others and to mourn with them. And as a disciple of Jesus, we must be relationally connected to others, both inside the church and outside in the broken world as we make disciples. So this inward disposition, right, will bear fruit outwardly as we become the hands and feet of Jesus to the world around us, engaging in ministry, engaging in mercy, as we're going to hear Pastor Ken preach on uh, coming up pretty soon. So because Jesus entered into our brokenness, because he came down and dwelt among us, we do not shrink back from entering into the brokenness of the world. And I believe that we have lots of folks here who have that mentality. We've got families here who are, who are foster parents. We've got people here who have worked with adoption, people who have worked with those who have been trapped in sex trafficking. We've got people here that have done jail ministry. We've got our food pantry serving those around us who are in need. This is something that First Baptist Mount Healthy is already involved in and engaged in, but we have to continue to do more as we are the hands and feet of Jesus. So disciples don't just sit around in Bible study groups. They also put the things that they are learning into practice. And that is where we must continue to put our foot, one foot in front of the other and engage and do ministry. And as J.D. Greer says, not only will you be happier in this life when you enter into the pain of others, you'll be eternally comforted for leveraging your time, talent, and treasures for others. So do I have the capacity to mourn? Third question, am I content with second place? Verse 5, blessed are the gentle, or your translation might say humble, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who are humble, those who are gentle, those who are meek. A disciple of Jesus will be marked by humility. That's what marks us. It's a trait that does not come naturally to our prideful hearts. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis, he wrote, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Think about that for a minute. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. What a statement. And how true that really is. Anti-God state of mind. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. And as I told Ken, when in doubt, quote somebody who is smarter than you. And that is C.S. Lewis. The idea here that Jesus is talking about, about being humble, about being meek, is this idea of power, of great power under control. And a good illustration of that is like a, a thoroughbred racehorse. Like we're, spring will be here hopefully sooner rather than later because I'm tired of this cold weather already. But every May you see the running of the Kentucky Derby and just those, those animals, those steeds, they're just like muscled up and just great power. But you put a bit in its mouth and you can lead it anywhere it needs to go. Great power 
under control. Now, even though we have the ability to go our own way, to, to, to quote the song there, we submit to the way of Jesus. We submit to him. We can go do our own thing, but we submit to him by taking second place in order to exalt him, in order to serve others. We choose humility. And choosing humility means we leverage whatever power we may have to serve others and not exalt ourselves. Now think of Jesus. Think of him. He washed the disciples' feet. He got down and did that. He deserved the spot of Lord and Master at the table, yet he took the role of servant. He got down on his knees and he washed the feet of his disciple. Even though he is the creator of the universe, the king of everything, he humbled himself, as Philippians tells us, by coming down to us, by coming to those that rejected him and dying on a cross for our sin. He set the example for us par excellence of humility. So friends, listen, a true outward display of Christ-like humility only comes from an inward transformation from Jesus. So if we're going to talk about discipleship, we got to talk about what happens in our heart because if it doesn't happen in here, then it won't happen out here. So am I content with second place? Number four, do I crave intimacy with God? Do I crave it? Number six, uh, verse six, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Now, whether you acknowledge it or not, you have a spiritual hunger that you are trying to fill and a spiritual thirst that you are trying to quench. Every human being that's ever walked the face of this earth has had that struggle. King Solomon, he wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, that God has put eternity in our hearts. That's a part of the, the base wiring of who we are as human beings. So it means our hearts yearn for something that only eternal love can fill. I mean, you, got, you guys feel that, right? I think we all feel that. Even those of us who have tried to run as far away as we can from the Lord, we still feel that in here. Blaise Pascal, he was a famous French mathematician, philosopher, again, another really smart guy. He put it like this. He says, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God the creator made known through Jesus Christ. It's there. It's a hole. So drugs, money, sex, acceptance, power, recognition, approval, romance, relationships, none of these things will ever fill the God-shaped hole in your heart. No matter how much you try to stuff in there, only Jesus can fill that. Only he can do that. He's the piece of the puzzle that will make your life complete if you're searching for that today. If you fill that hole in your heart and you're like, man, I've tried to stuff it with all these things. I didn't realize that's what I was doing, but now I understand that's what I was doing. Today is the day that you find that puzzle piece. So to guard yourself from attempting to substitute these idols that we just talked about for Jesus, remind yourself of the gospel every day. Remind yourself of what he has done for you day in and day out, that he is who your identity is, is based in. 
And also take a moment to pray, to draw near to Jesus each day. And if all you have is five minutes, give that five minutes to the Lord. We have busy lives, I get it. But if we can give what little we have to him, we will see great benefits reaped from that. Gradually, you're going to see that time and that desire begin to grow. But it is on you to give that offering to him of that time to to make time to be intimate with him. So friends, listen, as a disciple of Jesus, we need to allow him to inwardly cultivate our heart to crave intimacy with him. He has to be the one to till that field in our hearts. So this isn't something you can manufacture. It comes from the spirit working within you. All right, so do I crave intimacy with God? Number five, am I merciful? Am I merciful? Blessed are the merciful, as it it says in verse seven, for they shall receive mercy. And mercy can be defined as a withholding of something that is deserved, right? Like you have mercy on somebody, It's like you're withholding punishment. Or as, you know, Uncle Jesse used to say on Full House, have mercy, right? Like you see this mercy. Those who have experienced mercy can't help but be merciful. If you have have been shown mercy, (laughs) you will show mercy to others. And we have been shown the greatest mercy of all in Jesus. And so this verse used to confuse me, though. And I had to wrestle with it again. It sounded like if we failed to forgive someone, then Jesus wasn't going to forgive us. And that conflicts with other things the Bible says about being saved by grace through faith, right? Like, you know, and so, so some people come to this and it kind of like, you know, kind of gives them a speed bump a little bit here and they don't know what to do with that. But there's a parable of Jesus about this that I went to that unlocked the meaning for me. And it's found in Matthew chapter 18. He's discussing forgiveness with Peter, you know, because Peter thought he was smart, came to Jesus and was like, how many times do I need to forgive? You know, is seven times good for forgiving somebody? And Jesus kind of laughs and he's just like, you know, try 70 times seven, bud, right? And the idea here is it's exponential, like you always are willing to forgive somebody. And I'm going to quote this from the message which, you know, is normally not a text that I'll go to, but I thought that Eugene Peterson, who, by the way, was a scholar in Greek and Hebrew and did his morning devotions in those languages, I can't do that. Like, so I'm not going to give the message much grief here because I think that he nailed it in this little parable. He says, The kingdom of God is like a king who decided to square accounts with his servant. As he got underway, one servant was brought before him, and he had run up a debt of $100,000. A lot of money, right? He couldn't pay up. So the king ordered the man, along with his wife, children, and goods, to be auctioned off at the slave market. It's a terrible thing. The poor wretch threw himself at the king's feet and begged, Give me a chance, and I'll pay it all back. And this is not something he could do. There's no way in this day and age that he could pay back this type of money. There's no way that us in our day and age would be able to just all of a sudden come up with a hundred grand to pay off this debt to stop this terrible thing from happening. But it says, touched by his plea, the king let him off, erasing the debt. Clear. The servant was no sooner out of the room when he came upon one of his fellow servants who owed him ten dollars. He seized him by the throat and demanded, pay up now. It's about right, right? Uh, The poor wretch threw himself down and begged, 
Give me a chance and I'll pay it all back. But he wouldn't do it. He had him arrested, put in jail until the debt was paid. When the other servants saw this going on, they were outraged and brought a detailed report to the king. And the king summoned the man and said, You evil, wicked servant. I forgave your entire debt when you begged me for mercy. Shouldn't you be compelled to be the the merciful one to your fellow servant who also asked for mercy? The king was furious and put the screws to the man until he paid back his entire debt. And that's exactly what my Father in heaven is going to do to each one of you who doesn't forgive unconditionally anyone who asks for mercy. So we see Jesus telling a story that makes complete and total sense. If we have been shown mercy, we show mercy to others. So friends, listen, those of us who know Jesus by grace through faith, those of us who know him should never forget that that we will never forgive anyone as much as God has forgiven us in Christ. He has forgiven us much, so we forgive much. And Pastor John Piper, he says it this way, he says, mercy comes from mercy. Mercy begets mercy. Our mercy to each other comes from God's mercy to us. You get the power to show mercy from the real feeling in your heart that you owe everything you are and have to sheer divine mercy. We should be merciful people. If we're a disciple, Ask yourself today, am I merciful? Sixth question, and I'm going to try to run through these next couple. Do I desire a pure heart? Ask yourself that question. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So being pure in heart means you actively guard yourself from the things that grieve God. The things that you know grieve Him. You attempt, albeit feebly sometimes, to avoid sin and impurity in your life and to go to him in repentance so friends listen sin in our hearts disrupts our connection with god it will always disrupt that connection it will keep you from truly hearing him when i was in bible college in eastern kentucky i left my job in radio got married to candace we were living on campus literally in the mountains I mean, you couldn't see anywhere without seeing a mountain. I think God had that, you know, on purpose. That way you had to look up, you know, and and just keep your eyes on him. But one thing that annoyed me so much, because I'm like a radio nerd, is you could not pick up any stations in the mountains. It was terrible. Even the one that was just right down the road in Middlesboro, you couldn't pick up 10 miles off the road in Pineville because there's mountains in the way, right? And so you'd be driving, and it would just... It would go in and out, and you're, you're like, man, I really like that part of that song, right? Poor radio reception. It's kind of the same idea. Sin is a mountain in your way that will disrupt that connection, that frequency, that connection with God and being able to hear him clearly and to have him lead you along. And about desiring a pure heart, Danny Aiken, he's president of Southeastern Seminary, he said, a longing for God's presence, a pursuit of God's purity, a delight in God's pleasure, these are the things that cultivate and characterize a pure heart. It's something that you are cultivating. So friends, listen, there are a multitude of reasons that we might avoid sin, but the most powerful one is that we want to know God. As a disciple, You should want to know your Lord, 
your master. And sin disrupts that. The more your heart is free of idolatry, the more it's free of lust or whatever it is that you struggle with, the more you'll see what God sees and value what he values and love what he loves. He will make the desires of your heart his. And this should be our goal as a disciple of Jesus. Do I desire a pure heart? Number seven, am I a peacemaker? Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus says in verse nine, for they shall be called sons of God. Now understand, this is not telling you how to become a son or a daughter of God, right? It's not prescriptive, it's describing who you are. Instead, it describes that we are already in the family here. And as a member of this family, we are called to be peacemakers. A peacemaker is someone who says, I value this relationship more than I value being right. You guys understand what I'm talking about, right? You value the relationship with somebody rather than value being right and being the person who knows that you're right. So let me try and see it your way. I'll explain to you my view, but I'm going to try even harder to understand yours than I am to make you understand mine. And where you don't see mine, where you don't see my point of view, I'll forgive you, I'll be patient with you because I value this relationship more than I value being vindicated as right. It goes back to humility. We are called to be peacemakers. And to be a peacemaker is to be like Jesus. Now, we're going to talk next week about how he came to bring... (laughs) He brought a sword. He divided people, right? But he is a peacemaker. It's the sinful hearts that are the things that have a problem with the righteousness of Jesus. So to be a peacemaker is to be like Jesus. And again, Pastor J.D. Greer, he said this. He said, Jesus was clearly in the right, and we were clearly in the wrong. (laughs) He didn't surrender his position, but he valued us. So he prioritized the relationship even over vindication and went to the cross in shame to win us back. Are you a peacemaker? Because, friends, listen, disciples are peacemakers, and peacemakers always put the gospel on display. Always. Can this be said about you? Am I a peacemaker? And then number eight, final one, am I willing to risk it all for Jesus? Am I willing to risk it all? Verses 10 and 12, 10 through 12, Jesus said, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you, uh, you know, they they persecuted... uh, them before they persecuted you. So in other words, Jesus is saying, blessed are those who value being right with God above being right with the world. You want to be right with God, not right with what everybody else says. So as disciples of Jesus, we're going to face accusations for our faith. It's going to happen. We just need to make sure that they are false, right? The same can be said for suffering. We're all going to suffer in this life. We just need to make sure that we are suffering for the right things, for the things of Jesus. So friends, listen, living a life that reflects these beatitudes and 
the righteousness of God is an invitation to persecution. And we're blessed in America. Amen? We don't have to worry about somebody coming up in here, rounding us up and taking us to jail and executing us because we want to study the scriptures and sing to Jesus. But there are countless, countless people around the world that that's their reality. They meet in silent worship services so that they don't bring down the wrath of persecution upon him, upon themselves. And you would think the world would applaud such a person, but actually the world nailed the perfect embodiment of these virtues to a cross. They nailed Jesus to the cross. Jesus is clear that people are going to act and speak evil against you as his disciple. He says that multiple times throughout the Gospels. And when it goes beyond words, which can certainly hurt, words can hurt so deeply, they can wound, you may experience rejection. You may experience loss of family, friends, or jobs. You may face imprisonment. You may face torture, even martyrdom for Jesus' sake. And when that happens, Jesus says, know that you are blessed. You're blessed because you know him and you have said, I am submitting to you inwardly. I've wrestled with this and I'm bowing before you, Jesus, and I am submitting it to you and I'm willing to risk it all for you today. So, you know, what we've studied today gives us a perfect portrait of Jesus. He practiced what he preached, right? I mean, think about it. Go back through that list of the Beatitudes, those questions we asked ourselves. No one sympathized with spiritual beggars more than Jesus, right? No one grieved over sin in a broken world more than Jesus. No one was more humble at submitting to God's will than Jesus, no one hungered and thirsted for righteousness more than Jesus. No one showed mercy to others more than Jesus. No one sought peace between God and man and man and man more than Jesus. He was a peacemaker. And no one suffered unjust persecution and evil against themselves more than Jesus did. And he calls us to follow him. He says, listen, <laughs> follow my example. I am calling you today inwardly to have that shift in your heart to be a follower of me. And those of us who claim to be a disciple of Jesus, we need to really ask ourselves today, we need to check the dipstick, these questions, the diagnosis, what's our heart looking like here? What's the level of Jesus that we've got going on inside of here? Are we becoming more like him each day? Are we being transformed inwardly by him as we grow in discipleship? If you're not a disciple, what's keeping you from becoming one today? You don't have to remain a face in the crowd wondering what this life is all about, wondering why you have the things going on in your life that you have going on, wondering what it's like to know God. You don't have to struggle with that. Today is the day of salvation, as, as Paul writes. Like, today is the day that you can become a disciple rather than somebody who is just a face in the crowd. And as I said earlier, Jesus is the missing piece for that hole in your heart. And he offers that to you today. So let him make you complete. A discipleship diagnosis. Where are you at today? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, even when it's 
lofty and heavy. And, and Lord, we could have done easily a, a whole big sermon series on each one of these. And Lord, it's just so much to try to cover, but I thank you today that you have plopped your word right down in front of us and said, hey, where are you at today? And God, I thank you for the challenge that I have dealt with over the last few weeks working through these. And so God, I pray today that you would help us to be true disciples, to know and follow hard after you, Jesus. And for those who aren't followers today, may today be the day that they say, I submit to you. May they know that they can give their heart and life to you, that they can become a disciple. They don't have to do this alone. We will surround them as a church family and we will walk through life together with them. And for my brothers and sisters here that are struggling with whatever it might be and they have somehow cut themselves off from fellowship here, God, I pray today that they would see that they can just extend a hand and say, I need help. I need somebody to walk with me through this life as I follow after Jesus. Whatever it might be today, God, we just give this time of response to you. Have your will and your way. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.